From southern Oregon to the coasts of Big Sur, the perfect mixture of sun, fog, and soil creates the tallest trees on Earth. Sequoia sempervirens, the coastal redwoods. Towering over 300 feet tall, these trees are ambassadors from another time. Here, a century is only the beginning. I'm your host, Alex Roberts. In part one of our two-part series on California's Redwood State Parks, we go to the mountains outside of Santa Cruz, the traditional homeland of the Awaswas people of the Amamutsun Tribal Band, and see the devastation from wildfires on California's oldest state park. We'll meet two of California State Park's senior environmental scientists and hear how old growth is much more than just big trees. We'll talk with the guy who wrote the field guide to mushrooms of the redwood forest. And we'll learn how, while fire may be the biggest threat today to old growth redwoods, it may also be their salvation. On this episode of the State Parks Project. Act one, what's the big deal about big trees? For the longest time, I didn't understand why old growth, other than its exceeding size and rarity, is so special. To find out, we go to several state parks outside Santa Cruz, California. Morning. It's a foggy October morning on California's central coast. Old growth redwoods stand all around us. Oh my God. There's a snag, but then there's also part of that. Oh my, it's, it's, yeah. it's very much, we just, we, and we just walked through a thousands year old tree that's just tunneled out through this middle here this is incredible yeah oh my god and that tunneling out was all done by fire yeah by, by hundreds of fire yeah was this graffiti here from the fire too or i'm out walking with tim highland i work with california state parks in the santa cruz district and i'm a, a senior environmental scientist how old do you think that tree is well they get to be between two and 3,000 years old at the oldest. So I would say that that tree, you know, it's always a, it's a fool's game to guess, but it's probably over a thousand years old. So, so yeah. this thing was a, a sapling in medieval times. Right, yeah, isn't that cool? Yeah, that's yeah. cool. <laughs> that is one of yeah. the most incredible trees I've ever seen. They're un, really unusual for conifers, right? Most conifers, you cut them down, they're done. They're dead, they don't re-sprout. Um, almost all conifers, but Redwoods, they re-sprout, you damage them, they regrow. Um, you know, you take out their, their top and they, you know, just start over. So while this trunk that we're looking at is a thousand years old, the rootstock that it grew out of might be... 3,000 years old, yeah. Yeah, or more, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, now, so we're, we're passing another giant, this is like a collection of old growth trunks that have yeah. grown out of one or have fused together or what's going, what are we looking at here? <laughs> yeah, and that's, they are all fused together coming out of the same kind of burl. It's hard to know whether genetically those would all be the same tree or whether that was, you know, what they call a fairy ring with the tree in the middle. Um, but normally in a fairy ring, you wouldn't have the tree in the middle. The tree in the middle would be gone, and you would have all of these clones around the edges. But um, 
this is unusual in that you have all these massive trees all coming out of the same kind of root mass. Yeah, there's like six just gigantic old growth trunks coming out of here. Yeah. That's just this massive wood at the bottom there. Right. Yeah. And it's a privilege to walk with Tim through this forest. Um, He's been a devoted steward for California State Parks for over 25 years. I came with background in field botany, um, self-taught. I wasn't, uh, my course of study in college was graphic design, so. Um, no kidding. Yeah, so since, you know, I've got here, I've learned, you know, more about wildlife than trained in, you know, some herpetology, learned some stuff about birds, learned some stuff about uh, um, aquatic systems and uh, hydrology and all the rest of it, because, yeah, you kind of have to, Kind of have to be a generalist which i think is useful as an ecologist one ecology course that i did take in college i remember the prof professor saying that it's kind of hubris to call yourself an ecologist because that's saying you understand all of these systems right well, my understanding is that it's all connected <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah exactly can you just describe where we are for a moment we're on in uh, Henry Cowell Redwood State Park, and we're walking on the old growth loop. And this is the part of the park that was never logged and was kind of the, the reason that redwoods were first preserved in Santa Cruz County. It turned out that the grove we were walking through was where the movement to save the redwoods all began. Uh, because the story goes that, I can't remember, somebody or other Hill, Edward P. Hill, maybe? His name was actually Andrew P. Hill. Came and he came to um, take a picture of these trees and the owner of the parcel said, you have to give me your negatives because these are my trees, you can't take a picture of them. And uh, he said, well, that just doesn't seem right. These trees should be for everybody. And so that was the, um, start of you know the redwood conservation movement it was andrew hill's photography that inspired a nation of folks who had never stood at the base of these giants to understand their importance and fight for their survival you see at this time over 90 percent of the old growth redwoods had been logged generating meager paychecks for many while amassing fortunes for the few and obliterating one of our national treasures for folks that had never been to the Redwoods or ever seen old growth, they had no tie or value for these trees still standing. Hill's photography changed that. A group of citizens got together and created the Sempervirens Club from the Redwoods Latin name Sequoia Sempervirens, and they sought to save these trees through the creation of California's state park system. Oh, wow. Oh, there's a lot in there. I didn't, I didn't realize that this was the the grove where edward hill <laughs> once again andrew hill came in yeah because he was a newspaper yeah yeah, photographer, was, yeah right? exactly exactly this was this was the spot wow they were going to log a portion of what is now big basin and uh, they got together and said you know we need to save that and so that's how uh, big basin became the first state park that we still have a proposal was made for the creation of a national park but because of the rate at which whole groves of redwoods were being cut down, conservationists knew that protection must happen faster than the rate at which the federal government moved. Instead, they opted for the creation of California's first state park, Big Basin, 
1902, 3,800 acres of redwoods were set aside. Since then, the Sempervirens Club and other conservation groups have expanded the boundaries of the park to encompass over 18,000 acres. In all, 49 redwood state parks protect over 144,000 acres of forest. When does a tree become, or a grove become old growth? Yeah, that's people. <laughs> Do you guys have like a ribbon cutting ceremony or? <laughs> yeah, that is, I mean, people like to say primary growth. People like to, um, there are a lot of different definitions uh, of what old growth is. And it's not just size, right? Because it's, because it's size and age and and mostly we don't know the age ages of a lot of these trees so what do you say yeah you know when you reach a thousand years you're old growth <laughs> you know some trees are pretty pretty tiny when they're you know several hundred years old there are some characteristics re those reiterated tops that we were looking at complexity in the canopy um you know large large wood on the ground but uh Having never been cut is is the first the first criteria. It reminds me of um, there was that congressional committee hearing uh, when they were putting Larry Flint on trial and they were trying to define pornography and they were oh, like, yeah. you know it when you see it. <laughs> yeah, very, very much. Very much. <laughs> there it is. While old growth forests will always be defined by massive trees, we've only just begun to realize that perhaps the most amazing part of this forest is hidden under our feet. I think the beginning of that book, The Overstory, starts with something about someone leaning against a tree and a discussion of how you only ever get half of it. You know, you humans only ever get half of it. We, you just see the tree, but that's only the half of it. There's all of this, all of the stuff underground that's going on. One only has to look at the root ball of an overturned redwood to grok what Tim is talking about. Old growth root networks are massive, with roots the size of mature trees. They spider out to melt with one another, blurring the lines of where one begins and the other ends. And those roots become encased by mycelium, the cottony root mats of mushrooms. Continuing a tradition of symbiosis that began in the soils of our planet's first forests. And therein is the true miracle of old growth. Where are those, the mycelial connections that I know that I, I get really excited to learn about? Is that happening in this forest where some of the trees are connected underground through? 100%, they're all connected. Yeah, they're, yeah, they are all connected to these mycelial mats and they're communicating, at least that's the, the latest research is talking about how you, one tree gets an infestation of, you know, of some sort of uh, pest and, and communicates to the other ones around it so that they can kind of armor themselves against it, inoculate themselves or get ready. And you'll see even trees that have been cut down or fallen down you'll see the, the growth will, sometimes they'll heal over and grow up and they're being fed by a nearby tree, right? And so, and then they'll eventually grow. Um, but they clearly, they're not photosynthesizing, so all of that has to come from some neighboring tree. So clearly they're all connected. I just wanted to pause here and acknowledge what Tim just said, that 
in these old growth forests where the trees and fungi have grown this network together that a tree can fall over and die, but its neighboring trees, its kin, will heal and sustain the roots, giving the energy that they have created and grow a whole new tree. You have all this sharing of resources and all of this working together that's happening in that same space while they're while they're also they are competing for light <laughs> so it's kind of it's a very uh complex relationship sounds like some other relationships i know of. <laughs> yeah um, but you do have this communication amongst organisms so that the forest acts more like the super organism as opposed to individual organisms and of course we as you know humans that's just alien to us. I just love this image of the forest as a super organism. That rather than this disparate collection of trees locked in some Darwinian struggle, that they're actually linked through their roots. And the mycelium binds them in a network that shares resources, warns each other of danger, and even heals the sick and injured. To learn more about it, I talked to this guy. My name's Christian Schwarz, and I these days teach Natural History of Fungi, which is an undergraduate class at UC Santa Cruz. I'm also one of the co-authors of Mushrooms of the Redwood Coast, which is one of the main field guides for California mushrooms. And Christian literally wrote the book on mushrooms in the redwoods, but he also seems to be all over the place, spreading spores of knowledge about fungi. That do biodiversity surveying, usually. I'm their mushroom guy. When you tell people that you're a mycologist, has have you noticed a change in people's reactions in the past few years? In the sense that mycology and mushrooms have just absolutely blown up culturally, the answer is yes, yeah. Is it hard to get into your class there at Santa Cruz? Yeah, we have about 15 spaces that are advertised to get into the class, and we have somewhere between 50 and 100 applicants every year. So Wow. Is it like Squid Games to get into your class, or how? <laughs> well, like, how do you? you... Know, I just uh, no. There's no fighting about it. Can you talk? Can you describe the role of fungus in the redwoods? Well, um, one of the amazing things about fungi is that they're really diverse in their ecological roles. So there's not one role they play. There's multiple roles and sometimes conflicting roles. So some of them are plant mutualists where they help plants get established and grow and um, meet their water budget and nutrient needs where they couldn't otherwise. And in other cases, they're parasites where they actually damage the plants and kill them even. And both are important aspects of ecological functioning. It's not like one is good and one is bad. They both simply do different things and are part of the sort of fine dynamic balance, the dance of equilibrium that ecologies go through so there's that and then there's the more standard wood decay and just sort of litter breakdown recycling of dead organic matter that fungi do that people tend to learn about in high school professor schwartz is wrapping up a three-year study funded in part by a grant from the save the redwoods league he's documenting the mushrooms in big basin state park over the course of the project i found species that had never been found in the county before I found species that you know were were hadn't been documented in years. Um, 
I found new species, species that have never been described. So on 10 one-kilometer transects, I accumulated a species list in total, if you sum them all up, of something like 650 species. So this is much more diverse than you would expect um, plants to be necessarily. You wouldn't find the same diversity of plants on such a small area, but mushrooms are like that. It, it definitely highlighted something that was an open secret, which is just how little we know about mushrooms in California. We, we have spent some amount of time focused on them academically as a community, but I would say the bulk of our understanding remains to be acquired. Uh, I've heard also people say that, that fungi are, are more closely related to animals than plants. Is that true? That is correct. Yep, it, that is. Can you explain uh, that? The common ancestor of fungi and animals is more recent in evolutionary time than the lineage that led to plants. So the divergence between those organisms, uh, between plants and, and the animal fungi lineage is much further back. The more important clue showing the relationship between fungi and animals is that fungi and animals are not autotrophs. We can't make our own food uh, the way plants can out of sunlight and carbon dioxide and water. Oyster mushrooms and some of their relatives are predatory and they trap things like nematodes. So they actually harvest animal protein to meet part of their nutritional requirements. And that often um, totally challenges people's ideas about, you know, what fungi do, how they behave. That's really cool. But this is born out of the genetics as well, as well as, you know, biochemical um, problems, even things like a fungal infection in a human body. So some pathogenic fungus is much harder to eliminate um, than a bacterial infection because we share so much biochemistry with our fungal relatives. So like the forest, we have our own fungal network. Some of it's helpful, some of it's athlete's foot. And our genetic similarities explains why infections like athlete's foot are so difficult to get rid of. So we have fungi interacting with us as well. I asked Christian about how the mycelium interacts with the tree's roots. Yeah, so the mycorrhizal relationship is one of the main forms of mutualist symbiosis that fungi have. And the idea there is that the mycelium, so the extended branching body of the fungus with really fine fibers, has an enormous surface area. And by making a contact with a vascular plant's root system, it sort of extends the root system of that plant by proxy. It, it so these little tiny mycelial filaments wrap themselves around the roots vastly augmenting and extending the tree roots reach. It allows that plant to get access to water and nutrient resources that it otherwise would have trouble acquiring on its own because the root system, although it is a high surface area, it's lower than a mycelial surface area. And what fungi can't do that plants can is to photosynthesize. So they can't make their own sugar out of inorganic substances. So in return for granting the tree broader access to the soil, the fungi gain from the tree's photosynthetic sugars. So two plants sharing things like water or sugar or whatever resource you might be focused on, or signals, hormones, chemicals that allow them to change their physio physiological responses to things like drought stress or pathogens or predators like, you know, leaf grazing insects, something like that. This is the fascinating stuff for me. Like, 
Okay, so trees and mushrooms have a long-running deal on trading sugar and nutrients. Cool. But the fact that they communicate through hormones and even electrical impulses blows me away. It's like the mycelial network is not only acting as the forest's digestive system and circulatory system, but also its endocrine system and nervous system. However, when I try to compare the forest to a superorganism, Christian is quick to caution me. I do think there is a danger in overinterpreting it as a utopic vision. Like it's not, it's not perfection. It's not some sort of extreme mutual support network where nothing ever dies and every resource need is met. There is still natural limitations, natural constraints, death, disease, all of that still happens. So it's not clear that the picture is as perfectly rosy as some sort of media interpretations or media narratives have painted it. That has really, I think, somewhat deranged or painted a slightly incorrect picture of how these things work sort of a disneyfication of the idea but at the same time it's not like it doesn't happen um and there is a middle ground that is to be struck between these uh perceptions of it being a real sort of single organism i, I don't think that's a, a fair interpretation of the forest but at the same time it's not a bunch of atomic trees that don't interact with each other and have no meaningful connection i must admit this answer crushed me I wanted Christian to say, yes, 100%. It is a super organism. I realized I was attached to the Disney version. His perspective of cold, hard science brought a reality check, but I get it. As a scientist, he must bring a sober perspective to his study, must see what's there, not what he hopes to find. For the rest of us, wanting to find magic in the forest, it doesn't mean that magic is not there to be found. It's simply a matter of perspective. Christian did say that there was a middle ground between the superorganism and just a bunch of loner trees. Going back to what he said about it not being perfect, that death and disease all still happen. Well, that makes me think that's like us. As we come to understand the ecology of our own bodies, our individual biomes, we see that we as organisms are actually a collection of other organisms, bacteria, fungi, even microscopic insects, all trading nutrients, hormones and electricity sending signals. We are singing and dancing sacks of ecology, much like a tree is its own pillar of ecology, comprising an individual part of its broader community. So if we wanna find magic in the forest, we may first need to find it in ourselves. You say the hill's too steep to climb. Chapter 2. Tragedy strikes the redwoods. And one that forces us to ask, what is the true cost of a single tree? Even a dead one. In August of 2020, a lightning storm lit up the forest north of Santa Cruz. Dozens of smaller fires merged to form what would be called the CZU Lightning Complex Fire. Around 900 structures would burn, and there was a fatality. 95% of Big Basin State Park, California's oldest state park, burned. 
The park remains closed to visitors, but California State Park's senior environmental scientist, Portia Halbert, took me to survey the devastation. Portia's driving me in her California State Park's electric vehicle to Big Basin State Park. Look at that little house, that is so yeah, cute. Yeah, there's some kids, and the river's just right there, so. What river is this? This is the San Lorenzo River. It's the only river we have in our county. So our rivers are kind of measly in terms of like even Northern California. I mean, I wasn't uh, gonna say anything. Oh, it's true though, it's true. <laughs> the road's winding with the river past these old whimsical yes. cabins at the base of these 200 foot tall okay. redwoods. And it just looks like folks living in the Redwoods are living in a fantasy novel. So this entire community was evacuated. These are all Redwoods, so they really want to burn. Um, yeah. So they were basically just doing, what do you call it, triage. It's basically, Structure triage? Yeah, it's just yeah. like when the, when the fire's coming and you can't do anything to stop the fire, really, you're just trying to prevent the houses from burning up. We drive up a winding, broken road through the Santa Cruz Mountains. Post-fire recovery projects have the main entrance closed, so we detour on some back roads. This is a wild road, this is cool. Okay, I can't miss this turn, I can't miss this turn. Don't forget what you're doing, don't forget what you're doing. <laughs> so if you go into the park uh, straight away, that's, this is the main entrance. Uh, and because of this culvert, we're gonna take this route. All right. We go from emerald old growth to apocalyptic waste. Many dead giants still stand like massive burnt matches, stripped bare. Many trees have snapped in half or fallen down entirely. In places where it burned real hot, all that's left is a pile of gray ash in a crater with tunnels where the roots burned in place. Look up photos of this fire and you'll see the cavities of old growth trees glowing like a blast furnace. And we are, we're not even in the worst of it yet. So a lot of what you've already seen burned under cooler conditions. Uh, where we're headed into the park burned really hot. And the lightning storm that started the CZU lightning complex fire, it started dozens of fires across the forest north of Santa Cruz. Once again, Tim Highland. And they'd put out the vast majority of them. I think there were three that ended up that they were working on but hadn't been able to wrangle. I was with Tim during the initial sort of fire response. The first day was a Sunday. Responded to the ocean side of Big Basin where uh, we have a wilderness. The whole heart of Big Basin was a wilderness. Well, what had happened is we had this high pressure that was sitting on us and we had record high temperatures. And so incredibly hot, incredibly dry. And, but very still, right? Because it's high pressure, so no wind. One of the lightning strikes started fires in sort of the ocean side, very, very steep part of Big Basin. And the fire was, you know, moving around. Cal Fire didn't have any air resources to, to put it out because there were a bunch of other fires everywhere. I didn't even know that at the time. I was like, well, there must be a higher priority somewhere else. So I suppose, you know, we get what we get. So that was Sunday and that was day one. So they reconvened the next morning with fresh resources and a plan to fight fire with fire. We lit all night long. And so that was really, really exciting mm. to be burning something that we were hoping to burn in a prescribed fire. Cause it's like you burn it night and it's like it rains. These, it's like a little fairyland of fire. It's wonderful. By intentionally lighting smaller fires, fuel is burned off and taken away from the main fire. 
Yep. This scorched earth tactic hopefully creates a line that firefighters can defend. Despite the heat and dry conditions, things seemed to be going according to plan until the wind changed. We'd been on it for about three days. In the afternoon, the high pressure broke down and we started to get our just normal northwest onshore winds. Typical. But typically, when we get an onshore um, northwest wind, it's coming off the ocean. So it's wet, right? Uh, but since this high pressure had been sitting on us for almost a week, all that hot, dry air was pushed out over the ocean. So when we got our northwest and it started to blow back in, um, the fire behavior really started to pick up. And I remember looking, I was on the line there and, and it came over the radio that there was a spot up on China Grade, which is way inland from, from where I was. And I looked at the um, Raws on Ben Lomond Mountain, which is what I always look at for, for Big Basin when we do prescribed burns there. Raws. Uh, um, remote automated weather station. So it's the, the weather station up there on the, on the peak. And the RH was 14, and I think the wind was like 15. <laughs> and 14%. 14%. And 14% relative humidity yeah. next to the ocean. Yeah. And that's, that was with the wind coming off the ocean. So that's how dry it was. And think it had been probably in the single digits for the days before. So I mean, those the, are desert numbers. Yeah, yeah. So the fuels were incredibly dry. So I saw that. And then we also started getting spotting across the canyons where we were trying to put a box around, um, around this fire that these fires were popping up a quarter mile across a canyon. To help y'all picture this for a moment, Think about when you have a good-sized campfire and it's shooting up sparks and embers. Now, imagine that campfire is the size of a forest, an old-growth redwood forest nonetheless. And those sparks and embers, those are huge chunks of flaming debris being carried a mile away to start whole new fires. And once you start getting spotting out, you know, a mile, a quarter mile ahead of a fire, there's no stopping it. Everybody ran around because they could. We could see where it was going. It was going towards Big Basin. Around 6:37, around the same time, we got a call from Tim saying uh, we were headed to Big Basin, but we got turned back because uh, the fire is, you know, burning through it. That was actually a very harrowing day because, um, and probably not the smartest thing to do was to go up there, is because we had trees coming down just right and left. Um, and we were going up trying to get to the residences to see if there was anything we could protect there and had to cut our way in and then turn around and cut our way back out because there were that many trees falling across the road as we were doing it. There were a couple of times when we moved the trucks and then the trees fell right where the trucks were. Just so many burning trees. It's scary as hell because of this, just so much material, it's really hot kind of the domino effect of once one building catches on fire, how much heat, how much energy then is is transferred. Yeah, and you've got, you know, you've got a forest going off uh, next to you. I actually pulled everybody out. We were working on it, prepping it, prepping it, prepping it, and then pulled everybody out when the fire front went through and then went back in to catch, pick everything up. Yeah. You know. Once the fire burned over, they were able to return to the park housing to survey the damage once we got up to the residences, they had all burned down except for one. Plus all of the historic structures, everything was, everything was gone. 
Porsche drives me to the spot that Tim and his crew were trying to reach that day, the homes of friends and co-workers. Uh, so this is um, 15 houses. There uh, are 15 houses here? Yeah, you can make out their holes for them. Oh my god. Um, and this one made of, it. This one made it, and we have no idea why. But it'll probably get demoed. Um, to refresh your memory, in about 12 hours, we lost about 45,000 acres. So around 4 or 5 p.m., it just really picked up. Uh, the wind did. And it uh, started blowing the fire. It was all way out there. And it started pushing this way. And so this, this, these, if I recall, were lost on Wednesday early morning. So just overnight, 4 o'clock on Tuesday, it just pushed all across the mountains. So I want to go back. So you said 45,000 acres in 12 hours. That was about it, yeah. I mean, I, I, I hear, I've heard those numbers before for like grass fires, yeah, you know? Yeah, and like so moving real quick. Moving real quick. And yeah. so I, just the, the speed and intensity in this kind of fuel group, Yeah. that sounds unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what do you do? Uh, you, it's life and property. Well, it's actually, it's more like life. You don't really do much for property. We did a bunch of structure prep that evening, uh, and we're able to save a few structures. Portia tells me about her friend and coworker who had just come back to their park housing from another fire assignment. When he came home from working at Portola on Tuesday, he made himself a steak, sat down, took like three bites, gets a knock on the door from one of the rangers saying it's time to go. He packs up just a few things, takes off, and the ranger was trying to get the woman who lived right over here to get out. So he's here a little bit longer, and by the time, I think he went down to the next group of houses, came back up, and by the time he got here, he said there was a 100-foot wall of flames burning through the trees. And so all the resources pulled from the coast, came around and up the San Lorenzo Valley, and then up towards Big Basin, and we, uh, parks, all of the peace officers started evacuating the campground because we had a full campground. There's a campground on our left with about probably a hundred campsites and the one over here uh, on the right had about 60-75. Is this where they had to uh, evacuate people? All of this, yeah, all of this got evacuated. You had co-workers that were evacuating a, a thousand people here that were camping, you know, in the park and they're doing that while their own homes were burning down. That's right, that's right. And they got everybody out. Law enforcement, park staff, CAL FIRE, working together to get about a thousand campers out of the park, down these windy roads, while the forest is on fire. 97% of the park burned. Almost all of the old growth did, and most of it catastrophically. That night, the CZU Lightning Complex burst from its perimeter. It'd be another few days and a change in the weather before firefighters could contain it. Over 1,500 structures in the surrounding communities burned down, leaving hundreds homeless. A 73-year-old resident from a town called Last Chance tragically died while trying to make a run for safety to a nearby creek. Over a year later, large lettered signs showing support for the survivors can still be seen on the corners and in yards. The fire also burned parts of Butno and Año Nuevo state parks, but Big Basin took the brunt of it, including losing several irreplaceable historic buildings, 
some dating back to the days of the Civilian Conservation Corps and the birth of California's oldest state parks. I didn't really fully understand before I got into fire, yeah. just how it's like the fire is over. What's the danger? Like why Big Basin is still closed. I can just see a lot of people at home that are like, well, why is the park so closed? The fire's been out for a year, you know? And yeah, yeah. Um, so the primary hazard is sh just shit falling on you and killing you. I asked both Portia and Tim why fires of this magnitude are burning now. They pointed to three main factors. And I'll start off by talking about the first two. Can you guess them? Yep, that's right. Good old-fashioned drought and climate change for the win. While the decade-long drought that started in 2011 is considered over, the past few years have been rated officially between abnormally dry and moderate drought conditions. So these forests are still on the long road to recovery. Now, while climate change does exacerbate droughts, it's also destroying another key to the redwood survival. Fog. You know, they get like 30 to 40% of their water intake during this sort of drought Mediterranean time from fog drip alone. It condenses and it drips onto their roots. It also gets absorbed directly through their needles. So a pretty cool relationship with fog. But the fog is vanishing. One study I came across showed that fog in the region was down by 30% in the last 60 years. Less rain, less fog. And it's not just the redwoods that are feeling the hurt. The entire ecosystem is strained. All the plants, the shrubs, the mosses and ferns growing on the trees themselves. And by turn, the wildlife living there feels the squeeze. But the third reason for these catastrophic fires are the redwoods themselves. Most people don't understand that they are also propagators of fire, that they are extremely flammable. Although their bark is fire resistant, their needles are super flammable and they produce a lot of them. They're incredibly messy trees. They make a lot of material. If you have a house, which I do under some redwoods, you clean your gutters out every, you know, three weeks probably. And you still have, you still got material in mm -hmm. there. So they're dumping, yeah. a, they're really dumping a lot of material on. This material is what we call duff. The reason the redwoods create all this stuff is because they've evolved to depend on fire. You see, for all of history, until the last hundred years or so, natural lightning caused fires would burn through here, cleaning up all this duff, this fuel. Fire was so important for the land, the Native Americans wielded it like a tool to shape the landscape to their needs and to steward the forest. Once you had, you know, uh, humans here 10,000 years ago, they were going ahead and lighting things on fire. And why were the native peoples, why did they intentionally set fires? Because without fires, grasslands go away. Um, hmm. they, they get invaded by native shrubs and then trees, and so they disappear. They need some sort of disturbance regime. And the grasslands in California and North America have been maintained first by the Pleistocene megafauna we had mammoths and mastodons and giant ground sloths and all sorts of huge herbivores that would um, keep these grasslands open by grazing the shrubs, beating the shrubs back, beating the trees back. And then when those animals went extinct at the end of the last ice age and people started to spread out, then um, they started using fire to keep those same grasslands open. And the reason to keep a grassland open is because grasslands provide 
they have a diverse assemblage of plants so you can get food from them all through the year. Mm. So you have seed crops coming ripe all through the year. Right now we have all the tar weeds are starting to come ripe, right? So if you were managing your food resources through the year, then grasslands are incredibly important. And then there are reasons to burn the forest as well because you open things up, you can see what you're doing, you're not tr tripping on sticks, you can hunt game, you're encouraging new shoots and new growth for herbivores. Also native peoples used fire to encourage new shoots in all sorts of different species that they used for basketry because the native peoples of, of California didn't uh, use ceramics, so they did everything with fiber and with basketry. And there's some really great evidence that without fire, you know, these plants make kind of twisty, not great material for, for making baskets, right? You cut a willow and you get all these beautiful straight shoots, and those are really useful for all sorts of things. And they, they're not going to cut them, right? You can burn them instead. So it was an incredibly uh, powerful tool for native peoples managing the land for all of their different needs. And, you know, consequentially, all of these ecosystems, because of the climate, because of the native management, they all evolved with fire. And without it, they, they change. Tim, I just wanted a simple answer for that one. <laughs> <laughs> now that we put fires out, we've allowed the duff to accumulate, creating the catastrophic conditions we see today. We allowed the fuel to build up in such a way that when it did finally burn, because that's inevitable, that is like a fundamental law that it, it, it's not if, but when, right? So it will burn and we let it burn under conditions that we weren't able to put it out because we had put out all the other fires before this. So that to me is the beginning, right? That when I think about this tragedy, it's first that we fucked up so royally and we continue to do it. Like there's just this awful, absolutely awful response to these fires. Like we keep doing what we know is making it worse. I think that the, the greatest loss was to you know the human infrastructure and people's lives and all of the rest of that and i think that it's easy for people to think of fire as the enemy right your your house doesn't get destroyed by fuel it gets destroyed by fire but fire doesn't exist without fuel so it's easy to focus on fire as a problem but it's really a symptom of the problem, which is the buildup of fuel. But it's hard to get worried about a stick on the forest floor. So what you're doing by putting fires out is actually putting people in harm's way. But as an ecologist and a land manager, I never had the sense that, oh, the forest is destroyed. Because one of the things about a forest or any system is it's not static, right? That's the, it's always changing. And this idea, I think that there was this idea again, and it's like we talked about with, with people coming here and saying, oh, we wanna, we wanna preserve this forever as it was in some point in time, right? My view of Big Basin wasn't that it was a pristine, perfect place, 
right? My view was this place has had fire suppression in it. It's got all of these problems. It was not a super healthy forest. I don't love, you know, the health, uh, but it was, a, it was a forest that hadn't seen a lot of fire. It was changing and it wasn't as diverse and vibrant as it could be. You know, we're looking at individual trees and that's what I think most people come to those sorts of forests for. They come and they look and they see these great, big, amazing trees. Awesome, we're good, right? But what about all the understory? What about all the little trees? What about all the, you know, the different bird species? What about all the different animal species? What about all the different wildflowers and all the, all those things that hadn't been seen in a hundred years because we'd been suppressing fire? So this fire, while it was really hard on some of those individual trees, was amazing, an amazing opportunity for all of these other species that had been taking it in the shorts for a long time. Is that it? I know. I would have run, run it a little longer. <laughs> Come on, man. You got to get that thing warmed up, bro. <laughs> Back to the fire. After ripping through Big Basin and the surrounding communities, a change in the weather brought relief. Rain helped fire crews contain the fire, and winter brought an end to the fire season. However, a mysterious thing started happening in Big Basin State Park. New spot fires would just spontaneously combust in the oddest places. It turns out, the CZU Lightning Complex fire, it wasn't done yet. Embers and smoldering fire were able to survive the winter. In some cases, it smoldered through the roots, undetected underground, then chimney up through the tree trunks, emerging sometimes over 100 feet in the air to shower embers down rekindling new fires. Portia took me to see one such tree and show me the lengths that they were going to to save it. In January. So this tree that we're going to look at has been burning. Most likely this is the, the spot that it started from. So just so that the, the main fire came through in the previous August. That's right. And then we have a, a winter or most of a winter of rain or at least, or a mild winter of rain, and then uh, January, we have a few nice days, things warm up, things dry out, because now this isn't keeping it, you know, cold and wet and damp anymore, even with a little bit of rain. And the fire that, the little ember that was burning inside one of the tree hollows or in one of the tops, gets a little wind, gets a little drying, and it just lights everything up. There you go. Oh my it's God, you can, it's still smoking. It's still smoking. Um, so we, our guys check it every day, make sure. We stand before the charred remains of what once was a massive redwood. It's about 12 feet across the base and the top is broken about 60 feet into the air. A small but constant plume of smoke drifts from the top. To try and keep this little smolder in check, Cal Park staff have rigged up this line where they, they, so picture this, they've thrown a line over a branch and then using that line about 60 feet in the air, hauled up a hose, like a small fire hose with a nozzle on it. And they're spraying across at this broken smoldering top of this redwood. We're, we're what, like a hundred feet from the road or something? I don't know. Uh, I'm we're so probably bad. 300 feet. 300. I'm really good with distance. <laughs> we're probably 300 feet from the road. 
Um, and now we have this, and we've got... It's an inch and a half line connected to a garden hose-sized uh, fire hose called a P-line. Uh, and it's strung up probably, I think those are 100-foot sections yep. of P-line. So it's 150 feet, it looks like. And then at the very top, it's connected. It's got like a... I can't make out what that one is. Portia shows me that to aim the nozzle, it's a very technical maneuver of just twisting this hose back and forth. This hose is hanging vertically from this branch about 60 feet up. 60 feet tall and got a big hole in the middle of it where it's all burnt out. So trying to dump as much water in there as you can by angling this just so with the wiggling. So that's what we've been doing. Wow. Uh, What's... And so, yeah, this is this one's hanging about 60 feet in the air. What, what's the highest one that you think you guys have done? Well, we did a couple on hillsides that, you know, if, uh, if you didn't have the hillside, it probably would have been 125 feet up uh, because, you know, we were using the, the height that we could gain from the hillside. So the way that we get them up there is with um, this basically heavy-duty thread and a beanbag weight that's like 8 or 10 ounces. Uh, we've got uh, both a slingshot and a gun that's charged with a 22 caliber um, charge, I guess. And um, why? <laughs> like, this is one of the things that I've, we, I've spent a fair amount of time thinking about, and I think we had to come to terms with because it's taken a lot of time and energy to do this. This tree's dead. But it will it will stand. Look, an ember just fell yeah. <laughs> to the ground here in front of us. Yeah, uh, still on fire. But there's, you know, it's just dust at this point. The right. ground all around it. So there's nothing. You don't need me to punch in some line around that thing. Um. So uh, why why don't we just cut it down? Just walk away from it. Um, because that's what Cal Fire wanted to do. They wanted to cut down these trees. Um, because they're pain in the ass because they keep lighting things on fire. However, we're in the middle of this big burn area where we, in terms of parks, don't have a problem with this reburning. In fact, that's probably what should happen, get rid of some of this fuel. Uh, I mean, it's a natural process. This is what should happen. Uh, and not only that, but these trees, um, I don't know. Uh, I think about what a tree is worth, right? If I were to give you the speech, Please do. All right. Um, well, a tree like this, I mean, when you think about it, you can like quantify its worth in terms of like board feet. You can think about it in terms of uh, sort of an experience that maybe people would have. Uh, you can also think about its worth in terms of lifetimes, right? I mean, this tree is probably on the order of, you know, 1,800 to 2,000 years old. And, you know, when you consider our own lifespans in comparison, they're pretty puny. And, uh, you know, even standing dead, it's still a wonder. It's still a marvel. It's still an amazing thing in terms of a resource. And then, of course, it does provide value as it remains standing. But you have to go, okay, well, we have tens of thousands of dead standing trees. Do we really need this one? I would say, yeah, we need them. And uh, part of my job is to protect even this dead standing tree, not just because it's dead and standing, but especially because of its, of its stature. I mean, it's an impressive tree any way you look at it. Yeah, this thing's incredible. 
I step back and look at this massive charred trunk. Bare of branches, some light smoke wafting into the breeze, and see that there are similar trees all around us. And I do start to wonder about all the effort that has been made to save this dead tree. And I can understand Calfire's perspective. I mean, what are they saving after all? As Portia says herself, this tree is dead. As a firefighter, we work and train damn hard to put fires out, like all these other fires plaguing California. So why devote even a single resource to a dead tree in a forest of dead trees? But I take another step back and think about how little old growth is left compared to what there once was. And I wonder too, how much longer will this trunk remain standing because of the efforts of Portia and her fellow park staff? And I realize this thing may even outlast me. Dead trees can stand for decades, serving as habitat for bugs, birds, plants, and fungi in numbers too great to count. Then in its own time, it will slough into the soil and serve as the basis for a new tree. And while this fire was a catastrophe in our own lifetime, it was just another chapter in the ever-evolving story of this forest. Gazing around, I see spring-fresh green everywhere contrasted against the charred black. New saplings sprout around burnt stumps, rejuvenated by the wood-wide web of fungi and the roots of neighboring trees. Hopefully one day, growing into one of those fairy rings, a circle of redwoods, standing shoulder to shoulder like the kin they are, continuing the tradition that began in the soil so long ago. Darkness, darkness all alone, yes we live in troubled times. All kinds of thoughts and feelings all alone, traveling through we people's minds. In the night time, when the sun goes down, man, darkness come along. I'm gonna look to the moon or the stars in the sky, right along that I know she's on. So shine a light on. Well, thank you for joining us for part one of our two part series on California's Redwood State Parks. Next episode, we head to Big Sur to learn about efforts to save the California condor from extinction. It's a really fascinating story. You won't want to miss it. Thank you today to Portia Halbert and Tim Highland with California State Parks, as well as Christian Schwartz, professor at UC Santa Cruz. And thank you to Lori and Phil McClennan for putting me up during my visit. Love you guys. The State Parks Project is a proud partner of Leave No Trace, who reminds you to be careful with fire. Make sure those campfires are dead out. Our soundtrack is provided by Spare Rib and the Bluegrass Sauce, as well as music from the Free Music Archive. The State Parks Project is a production of Chumpstick Productions. I'm your host, Alex Roberts, and we'll see you down the road. So why, oh why, oh Lord, do some people run astray? Using your name to put dollars in the killing bee and leaving there in heaven's way. Well, the billionaire's got way more than he needs while the fool's working hard to survive. Maybe we could all just meet in the middle, simply celebrate being alive. So shine a light on the circle of all of